0: Good morning, Acts 12, 1 through five. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Well, let me say it again. Happy Father's Day to everyone. Um, today is the day where we pay tribute uh, to the Trinity of ties, barbecue, and the cheesy joke, right? So, um, and uh, if you don't know me, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here and being a dad with two kids and a third on the way, I know I get called on for all kinds of things, whether it's to be superhero and squish some bugs that are terrifying my kids, whether to assist with wiping. um, You get your hands dirty as a dad uh, plenty of times, or I play the job of restoring restoring justice if Pinky has been stolen from Israel or Israel steals it from Ava, whatever is going on there. And then oftentimes I'm called to kiss wounds and so usher down healing from heaven, right? Like they're, in other words, like my job description is when pain and chaos hit, I'm called to like take charge and bring peace. Um, but more often than I'd care to admit, and you don't have to tell dads to do this, it's kind of like a rite of passage. Dads in the midst of chaos, instead of bringing peace, can often try to bring humor um, in those moments to bring wholeness, to bring peace. And listen, this is across generations. This is across cultures. This is just more often than not what dads painfully do. And I wanted to just highlight a couple uh, examples on where I've seen that. One, this is one of my favorites by uh, a dad and, her, and his kid. Uh, the kid texts, Realized I still have your debit card in my wallet from Tuesday when I went to the grocery store. I'm sorry, how have you been buying things? I've been using your college savings, <laughs> says dad. Uh, this next tweet always gets me uh, by one dad. We play The Floor is Lava in my house. If my kids leave their toys on the floor, I set them on fire. <laughs> or, or thirdly, this is, this is by far the one that slays me the most. Dad, there's a moth on the outside of the bathroom door. Can you get rid of it? Please hurry because I'm going to cry. Dad, dad. Dad is dead. You're next. Love, moth. <laughs> um, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily bring peace, but it sure is trying to bring... Humor, and in many ways, uh, this is joking nature of dads, but in all seriousness, in all seriousness, there are those moments, right, where, where chaos seems to hit. You open your email, and you get this crazy email. You open your door. You step into your office, and chaos hits. And what's one of the first things you, you think? It's like, is anybody in charge of this? Like, can someone take control, or... And you just reach out. Most most psychologists now are highlighting that the first response we have as human beings isn't to fight. It isn't to fly, but it's to reach. And in so many moments of chaos and so many, like those atrocious moments of pain, there are so many times where even dads know better than to joke. Because listen, a moth is one thing. But just look around. I mean, I don't have to remind you of the news stories that have just happened in 2018. Here we are in June. I mean, listen, think about who has nuclear capabilities. Think about um, the, the latest school shooting. Think about all of the different chaos that seems to be going on this world over. And then you go down to your microcosm of your family, of your friends, and the pain in those moments. Have you ever asked in those moments, is anyone anywhere actually in charge? Of course you have, right? As a Christian or not. We all ask that question because you, I I can guarantee everyone in this room has felt just the overwhelming feeling of despair that racks your body, the imprisonment of fear, and the anxiety that leaves you motionless. And in those moments, don't you just ask, is anyone anywhere actually in charge? Is anyone anywhere actually going to take control? And then we hear the passage we just heard read of the early church and we can suddenly begin to think, at least I tend to go there, that that somehow it was really easy for the early church to believe that God was in control. Because of course Jesus is alive. Easy peasy, right? Well, life is never ever, no matter what century you find yourself in, that simple We've been walking through this book called Acts, and if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. We started back there in January, and then we took a short break to a little letter, one of the most important letters, a really crucial, and one of the earliest documents we have of the early church, the letter of Galatians, written to a little church in Galatia as they were wrestling with with what it meant to be to follow Jesus and, and to really put the gospel, this good news about Jesus from Jesus at the center of their lives and shape all of their lives. And now we're back to Acts. This is kind of the origin story of us. It's what these first followers of Jesus did when Jesus left. It's how you and I got here. So I want you to picture them for just a second. I mean they are they following Jesus early on physically and they're thinking, okay, Jesus is going to usher in the kingdom. Now's the time. And then instead they watch their Messiah, their rabbi, their Lord, crucify, crucified, and experience this excruciating death on the cross. Now, three days later, they're blown away. Their categories are totally obliterated because they experience now the resurrected Jesus. Physically, he's defeated death. They're touching his body. There's no body in the tomb. And so they think, surely now's the time that Jesus is going to usher in his kingdom and make all wrongs right. And finally, God's perfect will will be established here on earth. But then Jesus ascends and floats up into heaven. Hooray! And instead, they see Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father up in heaven. And God does something that he said he would do, but they couldn't have imagined how he would do it. They had God with them. Yes, Jesus the Christ, but now they have God in them, the Holy Spirit. And suddenly there's thousands upon thousands who are trusting Jesus that he really is the Messiah, the King. And this goes on for about 10 to 15 years after the resurrection. You have a guy named Saul becomes, basically renames himself Paul. One of the most ardent persecutors of the church is now one of us. You've got Cornelius. We saw this last week. A Gentile is now a part of the family of God. And you've got Jews and Gentiles making this diverse family Of God, things are really going great. Jesus is king because, listen, when when life is good, it's really easy to believe that God is good, right? But then something happens. Suffering starts to rain down. And I'm not saying suffering hadn't happened before this, right? Some people had been imprisoned. Stephen had been stoned to death by the Jewish religious leaders, and I'm not making light of that, but the Jewish religious leaders had such a limited amount of control in the broader society of the first century. What is so important about what we begin to see take shape today is that now Rome gets involved. The Roman Empire, folks. If the Roman Empire is against Christians and wants to exterminate Christians and end the Christian faith, they should be able to do it. And so they're starting to ask there in the first century the same question we asked 2,000 years later, a question we so desperately need answers to. Is anyone actually taking charge here on planet Earth? Yeah, Jesus is seated on his throne in heaven, but is Jesus actually in charge? Well, let's take a look together. Let's go... To our story. And interestingly enough, when you come to Acts chapter 12, Luke sets this up kind of strange. If you don't know what you're looking for, he starts off with a story about Herod, ends with a story about Herod. He kind of bookends it. And then in the middle, there's this seemingly crazy story. And here's why because Luke is trying to answer this question. He's trying to answer for you and for me, for the first century church, for Theophilus who's reading this account who's in charge? Is it Herod? Is it the Roman Empire? For us today, is it Kim Jong-un? Is it the politician? Is it the cancer? Who is in charge? And that's the question we're going to answer this morning. So let's think about this Herod the King guy, this ruler underneath the Roman Empire and yet over Judea. His name probably sounds familiar, right? Mainly because there's a lot of them. There's a lot of Herods. Let me give you the quick rundown. Herod the Great is the guy who was trying to kill sweet baby Jesus back around the first century. And so he killed thousands of babies there in Bethlehem to try to kill Jesus at the start. Herod Antipas is his son. He's the one who oversaw the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. And here we come to Herod Agrippa. So he is the grandson of Herod the Great and the nephew of Herod Antipas. They hate Christians. It's kind of like a family trait. Herod the Great had tried. Herod, um, Antipas, you know, had, had finished the deal with Jesus, and now Herod Agrippa is trying to extinguish the whole movement. Now, look with me here Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. About that time, Herod the king, so that's Herod Agrippa, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now James, the brother of John, may, that may start to strike up some memory if you've ever spent some time in the Gospels. It's James, John, and Peter who are kind of like the big three, the most intimate circle in which Jesus spent his time and revealed himself most deeply to. And James here is put to death by the sword. That's not some extraneous, like extra gruesome detail with no purpose you see, Stephen, who was killed, was stoned to death. That's a religious execution. When, when John, or James is actually murdered here, it's done so by the sword, which is a political death. Rome is getting involved. Rome is getting ticked off at those who are followers of Jesus. They've had just about enough because they keep calling what? Jesus the king. When Herod's like, no, 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 I'm the king. Or what about the emperor? And they've had just about enough of this dangerous idea that somehow Jesus is the true king that's over it all. And so they focus their energy against the church. Look with me here at verse 3. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Jump down to verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God. Listen, folks. This should have been the end. Like, when you think about God's plan, it should have been over and done with. And who's in charge? I can tell you who Herod thinks is in charge. He thinks he's in charge. But Luke is recording this historical account for the first century church and for every century in which the church finds themselves thereafter to highlight who indeed is in charge, who indeed is the true king who's over the world. And what he wants us to know, what God wants us to know This morning is that nothing can stop the true king. Nothing. Nothing can stop the true king. And there are three things, I think, that are the most common misconceptions that we have as followers of Jesus or just people who are attempting to understand the Christian faith that we so often think, oh man, if these things enter our lives... They can really detour God's plan. They can really stop what God's trying to do in the world or we begin to question whether God's working at all. And so these three things, we see them brilliantly laid out in our text and we're going to walk through them together. And the first is this, we so often think that our suffering can stop Him. But our suffering can't stop Him. They can't stop the good purposes that God has in the world. Do you believe that? Isn't that what we start to see here and we're going to see played out in the rest of this text? I'm convinced that one of the greatest deficiencies that we have is the North American church, and most often, specifically in the white North American church, is that when suffering comes, when pain breaks in, we feel like God has somehow ignored us or just doesn't care or has no power to actually engage in the world and his purposes. We lead fairly comfortable lives, and in the midst of that comfort, we forget. Comfort is one of the greatest catalysts to forgetfulness. And we begin to forget, one, just how screwed up the world is and how broken it is because sin has entered the world. We forget that there is great opposition to what God is doing in the world, that the evil one is actually roaring and and walking around like a roaring lion, seeking for whom he might devour. We forget that God isn't surprised by anything in the world. We forget That God can turn the most horrendous of situations and experiences in our life and somehow by His divine power make them beautiful. We forget. And in the midst of our forgetfulness, we either retaliate or we disengage. But I want you to hear this morning, no matter what it is you're going through, no matter what suffering you may be experiencing, I want you to first understand that God will never make light of your suffering. God's not trying to mock your suffering. God's not trying to say you're a fool for even feeling pain or even focusing to some degree on your pain. No, 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 no. We serve a king who has been crucified on a cross and who knows pain all too well. But not only that, we come to see <laughs> that not only that, that, that God won't make light of our pain, but he will not be stopped by our suffering. And praise God for that, right? Right? Even when our pain and our suffering begins to break into this world, and yet we are even promised to experience suffering when we follow Jesus because of just how broken the systems of this world are. That suffering, our pain, cannot stop God from accomplishing His good purposes in the world. Whether it's isolation you're feeling, or loneliness, or depression, or infertility, or or even just the broken family system you feel like you grew up in, whatever it is, you need to rest assured that nothing can, nothing will stop the true king from caring about his divine purposes in the world that are so good and so rich. So let's get to the good part of the story, shall we? Um, let's go back here. Peter, we find him. He's imprisoned. He's waiting to die. That's not the good part of the story, but it's coming. You're like, wait a second. You really are masochistic. No, the, the good part of the story is that Peter's sitting there and he's, he's wrapped up in these chains, right? He's got a chain on each arm. Two chains. Not the, not the artist. Um, uh, two chains is in there with him. That, I don't. No, he's got two chains and he's got a guard on his right and on his left. And he's got further sentries in front of him. These guards that are there trying to make sure that nothing, 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 nothing gets Peter out. Because remember, Peter's walked out of prisons before. And Herod's no fool. And so he locks him up deep deep inside the prison. And we get down to verse 7, and this is what we see happens. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. I love this. This is almost like a new TV show, you know, punched by an angel. Like, that's the new... But just imagine, okay, like... Peter's sitting here and he's like fast asleep and then he gets punched by this angel and he's like dude wake up and then Peter kind of looks up and then suddenly in the midst of that you know these ain't these these chains they fall off just to the ground and he's sitting there and the whole cell is lit up and nobody's paying attention to this. Do you get this like the light shone in the cell okay it was dark now it's really bright chains hit the ground and the angel's like stand up you know, and I'm not going to walk around with you like that. You need to get dressed. And so like, and then Peter's like, well, would you please turn around? Um, <laughs> not really, but you got to imagine that's maybe what happens. And in that process, like, Peter doesn't even know what's going on. If you jump down here to verse 11, we see when Peter, or actually verse 9, and he, and he went out and followed him, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision, which is not surprising because just a couple chapters earlier, remember when he was there with Cornelius, he had this grand vision of God lowering a sheet, and he's like, okay, this whole place is lit up, the chains fell, I'm getting dressed, and I'm following this angel out of the prison, and they go out of the prison— And jump down to verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. In other words, expecting to murder him. And he comes out of the prison and he's utterly shaken by what happened. He doesn't even believe it at first, which I think is just really fascinating. And he finally finds himself free with this amazing story of being punched by an angel. And he makes his way to John Mark Mama's house where all of these folks, like these Christians, are hanging out. Probably better to say hiding out. And they're praying for Peter. And I love what happens next because this servant girl, Rhoda, bless her heart, she gets so excited. She hears Peter knocking on the door. And she goes out to meet him. And then this is what what happens. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate. (laughs) <laughs> but ran back in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Like, and Peter's like, wait a second. Hey, uh, I know you're excited, but can someone please? And by the time she gets to the group, look what, looks what, look what happens Yet next. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept ex- insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. So I want you to get this, okay? So the church, the church is there gathered, and they're praying for Peter. Like all these folks are there. And they're like, Lord Jesus, You're seated on your throne. You're capable of delivering Peter. We love this guy. We know you're doing great. Wait, what, what, Rhoda? No, leave us alone. Rhoda, we're praying, all right? Like, we've got some really important things to do. You're crazy. And God, we know that you can deliver. You can can do amazing, amazing work in your name. Rhoda. Like, seriously, if you bother us with this again, like, it's just a ghost, Rhoda. Like, it's not even, it's just an, this, this girl's going crazy, everybody. Let's just pray. And, and you know, God, we just know you're able in Jesus' name. Oh, yes, your glorious name. Amen. Amen. No, after, like, they're, they're consistently just, like, totally disbelieving what Rhoda is saying to them And in the midst of all of this. Can you, can you really blame them in the midst of all of this? Because, listen, prayer is a bit tricky, isn't it? Think about this. Like they prayed for James. They prayed for James, the brother of John, to be released, and he died. But here they are praying for Peter. And prayer is a bit mysterious in that, yes, God said no to James, and he said yes to Peter. And so I want you to hear from me this morning. If anybody ever says, well, if you just prayed with enough faith, then your prayers would be answered. They don't get what God's doing in the world. Because you know the only other place that this word that we find there in in verse 5 actually these two words, earnest prayer show up, it's in Luke 24. Same author of Acts, Luke. And you know where it is? It's Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays with utter earnesty in prayer so much that he begins to sweat blood. And you know what his request is? Oh, may this cup pass from me. Three times over. And what does Jesus hear? No. Jesus, would anybody say he didn't have enough faith? Jesus heard no. When they prayed for James, they heard no. But when they prayed for Peter, God said yes. (laughs) And this is the mystery of what God is doing. And what I love about this story is just how unbelievable it is. It's so unbelievable that nobody in the story actually believes it's happening, which gives me a lot of A lot of comfort, like, and I know this feels far-fetched, like Peter's in prison, the chains just fall off, an angel walks him out, he says, open sesame, and the gate opens, you know, like, and they get there, and like, no, Peter doesn't believe it, Rhoda barely believes it, and everybody praying doesn't believe it. And that's what's so fascinating to me, that's what makes it so believable, is that you just don't make this stuff up, especially if you're trying to start up a fictional movement based upon a quote-unquote legend. Who's going to write this up and say, I know what we're going to get followers with. We're going to get a story that nobody believes in the text. It's going to feel far-fetched to everybody in the first century. That's going to bring them in. No, like you don't write a legend where the founders are so lame, right? (laughs) And I mean that with utter respect. You don't do that. And that's one of the most astounding realities of why this book is so trustworthy, Because Luke isn't trying to be convincing. He's seeking to convey history, what happened. And he's like, whether you believe it or not, that's just what happened. I know this feels far-fetched, but this is what happened. And this is how God's working in the world. And so while we've been having this whole conversation, poor Peter's still standing out at the gate, (laughs) still knocking like, guys. And then you get down to verse 16. And when they opened, finally, they saw Peter... And they were amazed. You see, nothing, nothing can stop the true king. Not even our weakness. Our weaknesses cannot stop the true king. And that's what I love about this story is I see a lot of myself here (laughs) fumbling around in prayer, wrestling with doubts, just plain weak. I love the way one theologian, N.T. Wright, puts it. He says, I find all this strangely comforting because Luke is allowing us to see the early church for a moment not as a bunch of great heroes and heroines of the faith but as the same kind of muddled half-believing faith-one-minute-and-doubt-the-next sort of people as most Christians we all know. This is us. And I wanted to ask a question just in light of that. Where do you think you're too weak for God to work? Where do you feel like You know, you're disqualified. Is it that you feel like you're too old? That you're too young? That you're not articulate enough to share your faith with someone? Is it that you feel like you're not smart enough to further the purposes of the kingdom? Do you feel like your temptations are too strong or you're too weak? What is it? Well, I I hope you know that those are the kinds of people that our king loves to work with. Those are the kinds of people that he draws into his church and he says, Now go further this good news. Because when it, is when it is when we are weak, that's exactly when he's strong. Our weaknesses can't stop him. Do you believe that? Well, when we return to our story, we now come to the end here of Acts chapter 12. We've started with this story of Herod bringing the political persecution. Then we find this seemingly astounding story of Peter's rescue that no one seems to really believe at first. And then we circle back around to Herod. This guy who started this persecution, who's zealous against the purposes of God, but now he crosses the line. You see, he's standing before the people, and they're celebrating his power and his authority. And Josephus, a uh, brilliant historian in the first century, actually says that in this moment, Herod the king actually is wearing like this silver robe so that when the sun shines, he glistens and looks like a god and actually tries to convince the peasants. And when they begin to praise him, he basks in this insignificant glory. This guy's a tyrant. He thinks he's one of the greatest kings with all the power in the world and he's trying to stop God's purposes and God's plan in the world. And then what do we see down here in verse 23? Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms. Mm. The early worm gets the king. Um, And breathed... I told you cheesy jokes. Uh, And breathed... His last. Nothing can stop the true king. Absolutely nothing can stop the true king. Especially when it comes when we think of our suffering. Actually, God leverages that to further His purposes. Not that He delights in our pain, but nothing can stop Him. Our weaknesses and our inadequacies can't stop Him. And listen, folks, our earthly kingdoms can't stop Him either. No matter who's in control whether it's Herod who thinks he's in control and can take charge, whether it's the Romans, whether it's the United States and our politicians, whether it's terrorists, whatever it is, what is the most powerful thing you can think of outside of God? Nothing, nothing comes to compare. Nothing is a match or can ever seek to undo or outdo God. And that's what we come to see. Nothing can stop the true king. Absolutely nothing. And the church experiencing this persecution at the very beginning with all the power of Rome against this little fledgling community at the start. What do we see happens after this persecution begins? Look at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod is struck down with all of his authority. And yet the word of God continues to go out. Nothing can stop the true king. And this, isn't this what Jesus promised back in Matthew 16? That not even the gates of Hades itself will be able to stop the movement of what God is doing in and through his church, through the proclamation of the gospel, but it will continue to go forth no matter the greatness of the power that's proclaimed here this side of heaven. And this is really a turning point in the book of Acts. Because God is sending his people not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea, not just to Samaria, which is where the early working so far have predominantly been. But at this point of persecution, instead of extinguishing the church, it becomes a catalyst now for the church to scatter to the ends of the world and proclaim the gospel to every nook and cranny, wherever there are people who are longing for him. And nothing can stop the church and what God is doing through the church. And don't we continue to see that in places where there's a great amount of persecution, physical persecution today, whether it be in China or Middle East, or you name it. The church continues to explode even under under the guise of all this political power and oppression of the chains that come down on God's people. Nothing can stop the word of God from continuing to grow and increase because nothing can stop the true king. And if nothing can stop him, what are we supposed to do? Like, if you believe this, and and even if you want to believe this, and you want to begin to revolve your life around it, if nothing can stop him, what do we do? We join him. And how do we do that? It's right here in the text. Do earnest prayer. And I know what some of you are thinking, like, okay, Gabe, that sounds a bit churchy and a little anticlimactic. Great. Great. no, but in all seriousness, that's what we see God's people doing when they're living in light of Jesus seated on the throne. They go to Him with earnest prayer. Because here's the reality. Whenever chaos hits, we talked about this at the beginning, you're going to reach out to someone. Whenever chaos hits, you're going to pray to something. Whenever, whenever chaos hits, you're going to maybe accumulate more money to build up security. You're going to take more vitamins to feel better physically. You're going to drown your sorrows in alcohol or entertain yourself away with distraction. But whatever it is, you're going to find and pursue something to help bring bring that chaos into peace. Why not turn to him? To the one whom nothing can stop him from accomplishing his purposes. And why don't you turn to him with earnest prayer? What's earnest prayer? Earnest prayer is extraordinary, united, and prevailing prayer. It's extraordinary in that here in the text you see that this is above and beyond how they normally pray. This wasn't like a part of their normal rhythms. They gathered together for a unique situation because of the intensity of the persecution at that particular moment. Extraordinary means just something beyond what you're already doing. It's united and that they're not just praying alone, but they're trying to get as many people to pray the same thing. You see this? There's, there's beauty in the church coming together underneath the authority of Jesus and asking God to intervene. That's why we have prayer cards because we as pastors love to convene together and to pray for you and with you. It's why we have a prayer group that meets at 8.30 in the morning on Sundays to pray for the church and the, the good, the common good of our city. When was the last time you just got together some friends or family and you prayed for the purposes of God in the world? It's united. And then lastly, It's prevailing. It's prevailing. That just means he doesn't stop. If you notice here in the text, they're praying for Peter as soon as he's arrested and he's not freed until basically the 11th hour, the night before he is to be murdered. And they knew James had died, but they keep praying for Peter. You don't know how this is all going to work out, but you keep praying. You prevail in prayer. Because one thing is true, that God works through the prayers of his people We may not always like his timing or his answer, but he works through the prayers of his people. Earnest prayer is extraordinary, united, and prevailing prayer. And listen, I don't know. I don't know what chains um, you came in with this morning. I don't know what sort of fears are locking you up inside. I don't know... What sort of oppression you feel like you're under or pain or brokenness. And it's just weighing you down and you feel stuck. You feel like your body is racked with despair. I don't know what that is for you. But one thing that, that, that God wants us to know, one thing that, the, that, that Luke wants us to know, both in the first century and every follower of Jesus thereafter, is that sure, we may not know God's timing, Sure, we may not know God's perfect plan, but we know his character and we know his capabilities and we know that in those moments where we feel utterly imprisoned by whatever it is that's in our lives, God can have those chains hit the floor. He can and he will. And you know what? He so desperately longs for us to come to him in prayer, to lay it out before him to lay out our cares, our concerns, all of our anxieties down at the feet of Jesus as we come boldly before the throne of grace, this access that we now have in Christ. He longs to do this in your life and mine because nothing can stop him. Not even a cross where he went and he died for the sins of the world. Not even a grave that even though he went there dead and alone, rose again and defeated death, And no chain that this world can throw at him. Nothing can stop the true king. And he so desperately longs to hear from you. He so desperately longs to hear your heart. Because he loves you and he's such a good, good father. Who cares for his people. And as uh, John Newton, the famous hymnist, writes. As we come to him, he writes, Thou art coming to a king Large petitions with thee bring for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. So in light of that, instead of just talking about it, we're going to spend some time praying together, as a church family. And I'm going to kind of give you th- the flow of this as I'm going to do some praying publicly over us, and then I'm going to provide some space of silence for you to pr- pray individually, And then that's going to be kind of our rhythm. And then we're going to close by praying the Lord's Prayer as we turn to the Lord's Supper. All right? So let's pray together. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are our King. Not our problems, not our fears, not our rulers, not our inadequacy and failure. You are our King. and Nothing can stop you. We believe together not even our suffering can stop you, but it hurts. We're so often overwhelmed and afraid. So in this moment, we give our heartache to you. So church, tell your king what those things are and give them to him now. Gracious King, we believe together not even our weaknesses can stop you. And we are so weak. Our doubts, our fears, our inadequacies and our our sins. Yet by your grace, none of it disqualifies us. Instead, use those things to change us and make us beautiful. And so church, tell your King where you feel weak, where you need help give those things. King, we also believe nothing is more powerful than you, not our little kingdom in the United States, not our rulers, not the powers of this world around us, for nothing compares to your sovereignty. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who endure such great persecution, such intense physical, emotional, and mental suffering in the midst of fragmented families, death and torture. Help our brothers and sisters and please help us here. So church, confess your fears, pray for Christians who are persecuted and pray for our world. Do that now. finally, Lord Jesus, King Jesus, may your word increase and multiply and use us, for we praise you that you are on the throne, perfect and powerful, loving and just, for you rule the universe you have made, and one day you will return and reign fully. So we rejoice, we rest, we trust, we pray. And we ask that you can teach continue to teach us to pray as you taught your disciples to pray. So let's together pray the Lord's Prayer. The words are on the screen. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses